You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hi, my name is Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. But if you've made it to this sixth installment of Liberalism for All, you already know that. Um, But my guest for the conversation you're about to hear is Dr. Stephanie Halfley, Senior Research Fellow, Senior Program and Operations Director of Academic and Student Programs, and a Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Um, She's also a very good friend of mine and a wonderful person, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with her as much as I did. Um, Stephanie began her career working in emergency and disaster operations at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and the U.S. Forest Service, and then afterwards went on to complete a doctorate in economics, including the study of public choice at George Mason. So she's really seen some of these issues from both sides. In addition to the extensive work she's done since then to analyze disaster policy and nonprofit organization from this PPE perspective, she has taught classes, um, including in the economic analysis of policy. She's guided many, many master's and PhD students in their own research. And she's also taken on this incredible entrepreneurial role in the Hayek program. Um, so everybody at the Hayek program, everybody who benefits or uh, appreciates at all our products in any way, really owes her an enormous debt of gratitude for these efforts and for all her innovations. Um, In this conversation, Stephanie and I take on the topic of social justice and its relationship to liberalism. Um, I know this is a tough one for a lot of people. Hayek, of course, was famously critical of the idea of social justice, particularly in his early 1970s law, legislation, and liberty. Stephanie and I discuss his arguments in that text and his concerns about social justice, as well as some of the different definitions of social justice that have emerged since then. This has really been a contentious issue for many, many decades now, and the debate has changed over time. Um, Stephanie has this really interesting paper, Is Social Justice a Mirage?, co-authored with Virgil Store, which you can find in the Independent Review, which is a wonderful, accessible, uh, not gated behind a university library journal that anybody can enjoy. Um, And we spend a good bit of that podcast talking about that paper, which presents an alternative way to think about social justice. Instead of thinking about the pursuit of social justice as an effort that necessarily involves the use of the tools of social control and top-down central planning, we can instead take up Hayek's challenge by thinking critically about the rules of the economic game and whether they are as adaptable, inclusive, and fairly enforced as we would want them to be in order to feel confident that the outcomes of that process are fair. Even if you accept Hayek's argument that fair processes produce outcomes that are as fair as can be expected in an imperfect world, 
there are still an enormous number of open questions about whether the process itself is fair and just. And, and that's really the point that I think Stephanie and Virgil are trying to, to push in this paper and, and invite us to consider. Stephanie and I talk about political capitalism, uh, which is a, a term from Randy Holcomb, um, and this idea that market systems can be rendered rigid and hierarchical through political interventions. Um, and within pol political capitalism, we often see intentional discrimination, where the rules are different for some people than for others. And these are not systems that would be considered just by most interpretations. And the real world is rife with political capitalism. So understanding the way that systems of rules are flawed in their construction and in their operation, and the way that the referees of those economic systems may be acting on motivations other than just enforcement, kind of gives us this whole new lens to start to think about social justice and economic opportunity. And one of the reasons I find this topic so important for this conversation about liberalism for all is that a liberal order cannot be taken for granted, but instead has to be actively maintained. As all of us interact in society, and I don't just mean our interactions with political officials or our activity in the voting booth, um, but all of our actions that shape what is politically possible and what is political, politically likely. So this includes our ideas and values, the way we treat each other, and our involvement in coming up with individual and civil society solutions to social problems or social tensions, rather than deferring to hierarchies of political authority. Investing in learning about the justness of different institutional regimes and the way that political rules and social practices can potentially generate social injustices will hopefully be a valuable aid in the creation of a stable liberal order um, to return to a phrase I think I've used in almost every uh, of these episodes so far, a society built for freely relating dignified equals. Um, I've learned so much from Stephanie over the years, and it makes me so happy to play a small part in sharing her ideas and work with you today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you, Jamie. I'm excited to have our conversation. Yeah, it's always lovely to talk to you. Um, so we've been having this conversation throughout the summer on the question of liberalism and the way it extends or does not extend to all people. Um, and so as part of that conversation about inclusion, universality of liberal principles, however you want to frame it, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to you about your work on social justice, and in particular, this work, um, this paper that you wrote with Virgil Storr that builds off of Hayek's claim that social justice is a mirage. Um, but before we dive into the deep end, I just want to ask a couple kind of introductory questions to set the stage and, and so we can kind of keep that conversation connected to this big issue of liberalism. And so just to begin, 
Can you give us your definition of liberalism? Yeah. So to me, liberalism is the ability of people to have agency and creativity over their own lives, uh, as long as they aren't harming others, um, so that they can figure out how to best contribute to society, uh, make choices that maybe are unconventional, and innovate, learn, and grow. And I think this requires a set of civil rights and protections and something Hayek talks about of a sphere of individual freedom uh, to go about uh, your plans. Uh, in other words, I think there's an institutional setting that we need, right, for liberalism and uh, that allows and promotes for liberty. Yeah. So connecting in right away to this question of the institutions, which I think is going to be a big theme through the conversation. Um, but to tie into the that concept of liberalism into the social justice concept. Um, and we're going to talk about this for most of the hours. So we'll have plenty of time to elaborate on it, but just to give us, give everybody listening a preview of where we're headed. How is it that you're thinking about this relationship between liberalism, the institutions of liberalism and the idea of social justice? Yeah, so I think the modern notion of social justice, which is about sort of power imbalances in society, um, particularly when assessed through mainline political economy, is fundamentally about civil rights, access, who can be full-fledged members of a society. And so I think because of that, liberalism and social justice are linked. Um, and kind of spoiler alert for the rest of the discussion, uh, Virgil and I, in our paper, you say that it's not really a mirage, right? So there's there's tensions and things we can talk about, but kind of push on Hayek's idea that it's something we can kind of dismiss. Yeah, I like that definition of social justice, but it is different than the definition that some people use. Um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of some of that baggage that's associated with the concept of social justice, the variety of definitions of social justice um, that have been employed. I think, you know, this is a difficult topic to have a productive conversation around, I think, often because everybody's bringing in a slightly different definition of the concept. Um, so. Can, can you talk a little bit about that that history, that dynamic, and maybe we can start to address, just dive into the deep end and start to address maybe what some of those concerns are that people have when the idea of social justice comes up? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, originally, the idea of social justice was really structured around the notion of redistributing wealth, particularly because of economic injustices that people saw. And so, you know, in a way, sort of similarly to neoclassical economics giving way to welfare economics, this idea that markets were failing were systematically hurting particular people over others, and that kind of the redistribution of wealth would be the, the way to do that. Over time, these ideas have broadened. And so now the definition that we use in our work and that we've built on literature from is really about the, this idea of the fair distribution of both power and wealth in society. That's a tricky definition because we can talk about like what is fair um, and then we can talk about what does power mean and, and, and where does wealth come into these ideas. 
Um, but I think the newer definition allows us to think about things like representation, identity, um, inclusivity, diversity, and are there institutions that are limiting particular groups, maybe on purpose or accidentally, and how do we think about those power dynamics? So I think there's a lot of baggage that comes with focusing on the economic part, and there still is a lot of that in the literature. But broadening it open to talk about all our institutions, we get to think about, well, if we see injustices, what institutions and what rules and what, what limits are kind of symptoms or causes, right? And how do, how do we start thinking about a broader approach to um, expanding freedom in a way that isn't just about sort of like, you know, thinking that, you know, in capitalism, it's all about greed when we, we know that there's something going on in the market that's, that's bigger than that. Yeah. I, it, it is a, it is a tricky definition. And I definitely want to get into a little bit of that conversation about how we figure out what is fair. Um, but first, I think it might be useful prelude to that um, to talk a little bit about why is it that Hayek was so critical of that quest for social justice because I know part of his concern kind of centered around that concept of fairness. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Hayek was particularly focused on um, the economic injustices element of, of social justice. So this idea that the market itself kind of led to unfair outcomes um, that then we needed redistribution to fix. And so he had a couple of ways that he looked at this to really kind of think through, you know, is that true in a market? If so, how do we think about justice and injustice and how to, how to fix it in the market? And, you know, then what do we, maybe we need to be concerned about once we say redistribution, how it happens and does it actually address the issues? And so um, he's quite critical, but pretty thoughtful about the way he thought about it in a way that maybe some modern proponents of what he talks about sometimes are a little bit more dismissive, but we can talk about that later. Um, and so for, for Hayek and, I, and, and for me too, I agree with him that the market is an institutional setting and particularly maybe the institutional setting that best leads to social progress. And so it's about mutually beneficial processes of exchange where we get to experiment and learn and find ways to live better together. It's messy because it's people uh, and it's not perfect. And Hayek talked about that quite a lot because of all the limits we have as human beings. We have limits on our knowledge, on our ability to persuade and coerce others, ideally, strong limits on what we can do to coerce others. Um, and so for him, this process of the market wasn't necessarily about the outcomes, but, but how we get to them. And so for him, that meant a well-functioning market where you know property rights are protected. Um, there's a way to adjudicate conflict when we have it. Um, people can negotiate and, and kind of talk about all of these ideas. Well, then injustices that occur probably aren't systematic in a particular way. They're likely individual. And so for him, that meant that the market wasn't unjust or unfair, but people within it could be. 
and that that meant that then the repercussions should be individual justice. So, you know, if somebody um, scams you and you find out, you can take them to court and you can get retribution. So it wasn't necessarily that we just had to deal with the outcomes, right? Like winners and losers, shake it off and move on. Um, But he really wanted to focus on this idea of, you know, individuals acting in this setting are individuals and we should pursue injustices that way. The second element was that he thought this idea of kind of taking market failures and maybe kind of ideas of welfare economics all the way up to social justice as sort of these big reforms and redistribution that had to be placed was sort of uh, a sneaky move potentially um, for politics or, or government. And so it's got great intentions, but likely has, over time we've seen through history, not the best results. And so for him, he saw reforms to address social justice issues as actually being ways to codify who has power um, and who doesn't, to pick winners and losers in a more permanent way than he saw that working in the market. Um, And so for him, it was both, are we thinking about market interactions the right way? And are the solutions even going to get at what we want? And he was very skeptical, and I think rightly so, given the history of policies that are meant to help that they often don't. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, because of these concerns about what is what kind of manipulations are going to be introduced into the market system in order to kind of engage in top-down corrections to make the distribution of of power and wealth more fair. Um, you know, Hayek winds up deciding because of that that there is this trade-off between the pursuit of social justice and the pursuit of liberty. So we're always going to be sacrificing our liberty when we move towards social justice. Um, do so. Uh, let me give a little bit of context here about maybe one way to frame this question. So Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom wind up doing a lot of institutional work that kind of builds on the ideas of Hayek. And as part of that, one of the things that they emphasize in their institutional analysis is this need to break out of the dichotomy between thinking about the market and the state as our only paths forward. Um, And in some ways, although, you know, like you, I, I am in strong agreement with what Hayek is saying here, you know, in, in terms of this idea that if the rules of a process are fair, you can get into a lot of trouble when you come around after the fact and you know you you wind up um kind of corrupting the process and we can really create some significant problems for the market which is you know this great engine of not just creativity and growth but also kind of opportunity for all so that's something that we don't really want to be corrupting um but in that analysis, 
where he's kind of, it seems like he's imagining any move towards social justice as necessarily coming from the state and therefore necessarily involving some kind of top-down intervention in that process. Um, so it, kind of a twofold question, is that how you are interpreting him as well? Um, and if so, how are you responding to that? Do you see that same kind of trade-off between the liberty that the market requires and our ability to advance any other kind of social justice or are there other institutions, other dynamics that we need to be considering? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, I think this idea of like a very, you know, the dichotomy of the models that we use to think about the world can be really helpful and help illuminate things and then also put blinders on you know the real world. And what's interesting is I think Hayek understood this tension, but I think he missed an opportunity for how we could kind of, you know, kind of, kind of broaden these notions. So, you know, one thing that's that's true about how he talks about the market is he's explaining a well-functioning market. Uh not necessarily the real world ones that we have. Um, you know, that already have interventions and regulations and, and, you know, we can talk about, you know, political capitalism or crony capitalism and like those sorts of entanglements later. But, you know, this, this idea that you know, a well-functioning market is this process where we have rules, we have learning, we have, you know, ways for people to both be rewarded for, for socially beneficial behavior and punished um, for, you know, socially wasteful behavior through profit and loss and, and other elements. You know, like that's a great model to use and it allows us to have a lot of interesting questions when we think about social justice, right? Is it individual or is it group? Um, you know, it also allows us to compare, you know, the current world and in particular res re regulations based on that model. But once we get stuck there, then I think it gets a little trickier, right? Because one, we don't have that right away. So just saying, just saying, you know, the market isn't going to produce these outcomes it is useful, but might not reflect a market that already has restrictions and power dynamics because of an entangled political economy approach or something like that. Like you used to use Wagner's language. Um, and then I think kind of the missed opportunity for Hayek when thinking about this trade-off between liberty and social justice is kind of who and what he saw social justice is. And so if social justice is solely a movement about redistribution of wealth to fix market failure through government, then that's his opponent. Um, kind of the way we reassessed it is to think about social justice as not a movement of people or a set of reforms, but issues we see in the world. And then we get to open it up and ask, is the is government just as to blame or maybe even more so for some of these injustices and how they persist? And how does, you know, society, culture, and other things are sticky or not? And how does social change happen? And so, you know, I think once we can kind of break free of who we're arguing against and more trying to find common ground about in, 
about these things, then the trade-off kind of goes away because we can talk about different reforms and, and kind of different options. And I think what's interesting about social justice is that has evolved over time since Hayek was writing. And so they are talking about power dynamics, um, you know, issues like police br brutality and civil rights and civil liberties are now part of social justice conversations. And so I think that opens, if we continue to treat it as the group, as the group of reforms and reformers that Hayek was, I think we really missed that opportunity to kind of break out of the trade-off. This conversation is, it's a really interesting one, particularly in the context of talking to other economists, because you're an economist, you came up in the discipline of economics, um, and a lot of the the language and the ideas that you're using are more associated with disciplines outside of economics, you know, where you're breaking apart the more narrow models and trying to bring in these other concepts. Um, have you had difficulty in discussing this set of ideas with economists? Um, and I don't know, how, how has that experience been? Yeah, I think it's 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 tough and interesting and always cool to see where you find ways to interact with people, whether within the discipline or, or outside. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of what we do at the Hayek program is kind of a broader approach to economics, right? We're kind of thinking about institutions. We're, we're building off of these ideas that it's not as limited on what economics is and you know, how, how we think about other institutions. And so, you know, I think for, for part of that, it kind of fits quite well within what we do. But I think there's this, this baggage of who are the reformers, who are the activists, what's the, what's the past uh, historical challenges that come with some of these terms. Um, you kind of, you see that today with, you know, uh, the younger generation being interested in, in things like market socialism. And we're like, we, we know that their definition of it isn't the one from, you know, 50 years ago. And so how do we update to combat the current debate and not just kind of rehash the old debate, I think is an interesting one. Um, it's also interesting because I think like, I think generally within the, the discipline of economics, some of these concepts are things we've avoided. Um, but they're not different than some of the reforms that come out of economics, particularly other schools of thought. So like, you know, welfare economics and social justice, particularly the type Hayek was looking at, seem kind of the same. They're just based on different justifications. So rather than a clear textbook example of a market failure that we can easily tweak to change it, right? It's this idea instead that like, there's more systematic something going on, right? But like they're very, they have, they, they are the same types of reforms and the same results that we can kind of look at as well. And so, you know, it's an interesting way of, I think sometimes we talk past each other rather than kind of look for, for common ground. Um, and then I think it's also, yeah, how, how, 
how sticky are we to the old debates? I think like we can learn about them. Like there's so many lessons to learn from the socialist calculation debate, Hayek developing his ideas of knowledge, but there's also new things we can do. So, you know, um, Don Lavoie's work on, on national economic planning, building off of these ideas, he talks explicitly about how government intervention leads to power, and he called it a power problem in addition to knowledge problem, right? That opens up immediately this space where we can kind of bring in other ideas and disciplines and, and maybe have an impact outside of our discipline, <laughs> um, you know, if we're interested in you know, social change and and in the real world and, and and how do we promote or understand how that's going on. Um, yeah. And so I think that there's that challenge. And I think, you know, kind of similarly, if we get really stuck in our models, we might not want to have discussions about social inequities, which is confusing for me for, for also economists that are interested in, in liberty, right? Because like that seems important. Um, it makes us ask, well, who do we have preferences over who gets those liberties, right? Is it liberty for me and and or is it for all? Um and but also, you know, questions about you know some of the ways that Hayek talks about the market in this in law legislation and liberty where he's discussing these ideas. You know, he he talked about morality and these other aspects of the market in, in other works and, and within there too, but like you know, this kind of idea that the market's just a process. It is what it is. People are interacting, right? Well, we also know that there's there's potential for relationships and and maybe moral lessons, which is again very different than sort of the traditional social justice approach. But answers questions about this kind of corruptibility um, that we might have in the market, right? And so I think kind of bringing these ideas in, I think, are important if we if we want to not just keep rehashing the same debate and talking past each other, maybe. Um, yeah. But also, I think a lot of the newer generation of students and scholars are interested in these ideas. They're just more talked about and part of the world. And so we've got to, you know, we've got to open up how we think about those things. Yeah, I think a lot of these dynamics just get to the issue of how hard it is to do good social science. And this is something I've already talked about a little bit in this Liberalism for All series with Deanna Thomas. But, you know, as social scientists, we're trying to study society, but we also are society. We can't make ourselves not people. And so we, you know, you, you can work hard to try to, to check your biases and your preconceptions and to be as analytical as possible. Um, but every one of us, myself included, we're going to have this kind of set of priorities in mind. So I think sometimes people can be resistant to advocacy for social justice because they view it as in some way secondary to the primary issue of economic growth. You know, if you're an economist or if you are um, in another discipline, it might be 
secondary to the primary issue of climate change or of, uh, you know, one particular form of social injustice rather than social injustice overall. So, I mean, there are a lot of different versions of that. Um, but I think it's I think it's really hard not to let that sometimes influence what we think is worth discussing. If we have this preconception, okay, if I focus on this problem, I know the current world around me is going to push along a particular path in order to solve that problem. I don't like that path, so therefore I'm going to prioritize other issues, and I. I, I genuinely don't mean that to be critical of any one perspective or worldview at all, but just that's the great difficulty. Um, and, and of course, if you want the world to be better and you have kind of a, whether you're more politically minded and you think a particular political leaning is more likely to send us in a better direction or whatever, whatever your ideology or, or your emphasis is, I think it can be extraordinarily difficult to set that to the side. And also, even if you, you know, are analytically very successful at that, there's the practical element of the fact that if you really think that's important, you don't want to sabotage it. So maybe if I, you know, acknowledge these qualifications and think that I maybe don't fully understand the every impact of these institutions and I'm willing to be wrong you know for a lot of listeners that then undercuts your argument makes it harder for you to pursue what you think is the most important so so if I think I have to be 100% committed to economic growth because I know that that's going to lift the most people globally out of poverty and you know I'm very committed to that I do empathize with the perspective of then not really wanting to have a conversation about something else. Not, you know, to this is probably a little bit glib of a phrase, but I, I don't want to talk about first world problems when third world problems still exist. I don't. Ha, ha, do you have any reaction to that? I know that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely do. You know, I think I definitely relate and understand like that problem that you're that you're talking about right and i think we we all have it and you know hayek and, and mises and others are you know very aware that we're studying society and we're part of it and we have limitations and people have limitations and you know capabilities as well um you know i think it's interesting like for me the looking at these ideas and how people are concerned about pressing social problems in the world are ways to talk about the beauty of the market and the opportunities that we have. And when we open up governance to not just be top down, the options and potential that we have. And so, so for me, I guess I see these puzzles as ways to pursue those ideas and, and to maybe, you know, share that lens with other people, um, which I guess is important to me in a way that, you know, is different for other, to, for other, other people. I think, you know, we can't really have this conversation without acknowledging the incentives and the institutional structure of academia itself. Right. Um, you know, so Ostrom talks about how the messiest, 
most complex, hardest problems to get at are the ones that really need interdisciplinary collaboration, that we need to have multiple methods and we need to be contesting and learning about these ideas all the time. And so in in a book with some co-authors, she wrote about working together. And so that argument really resonates with me. I I do field work. And so one of the ways that I kind of check my biases, but also update is through listening to other people and how they talk about the world and being able to see, you know, oh, when somebody talks about these barriers to say disaster recovery, well, I can map that to, you know, terms and analytical tools in economics. And so, you know, translating problems and solutions in a way that maybe doesn't have to be, is analytical, but doesn't come straight from that, you know, right? Like comes from from empathy in the world. And, and so that makes a lot of sense to me and that seems right. And maybe also why I'm interested in these topics that are interdisciplinary, right? Let's talk about social justice. Let's talk about, you know, my, my co-author Virgil Storer has you know, work on morality in the market, particularly his book, Do Markets Corrupt Our Morals with Jenny Choi. And so like all those things are very appealing to me um, when because I'm interested in the really messy questions. But then the majority of the book that Ostrom has with her colleagues is like, but the institution of academia incentivizes publishing within your discipline, uh, solo authoring over co-authoring, which maybe that's changing, particularly as maybe the other way as we continue to try to mimic physical sciences or, or things like that. And they have larger co-authors we can too, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, it's really tough because the particularly the type of questions I'm the most interested in, it's just the way we do social science means that's hard. And so not many people, you know, even if you're really interested in these questions, in order to succeed and go about your career, you have to make choices and, and who do you talk to and, and what do you do, right? And so how do we, how do we break out of that is tough. Yeah. Yes, it is. All right. Um, I want to make sure we have plenty of time to go in depth on the core argument of the paper. So let's um, kind of shift back to that. So you make this point, you know, and correct me if I'm not articulating this correctly, but the way you frame it is that Hayek tells us that the only fairness evaluation we can give to market outcomes is to the market process itself. So as long as the market process itself is fair, then the outcomes are, if not fair, at least as fair as they can be and we can know them to be. Um, but he's premising this on the market being a fair game. Um, so you and Virgil make this point in the paper that that calculus changes if the institutional game we're playing is unfair. So if the institutional rules themselves are rigged or biased in some way. And so you give 
two ways that the market could potentially be unfair. Um, and the first one of these is that you, you suggest if everybody is forced to always play the one same game all the time and you have to play even though you have no chance of winning, um, that that could be reasonably conceived as unfair. And so the example you give is of a society that has political capitalism rather than market capitalism. So maybe they have a political structure that has pushed their society towards um, one single very hierarchical market structure rather than the kind of more diverse system of markets that we encounter in a in a free society. So can you just elaborate on this idea of you know kind of being forced to participate in a singular market structure without exit options kind of you know what that looks like, where we see it in the real world and and why it's a, a problem from this perspective of social justice. Yeah, so so kind of first off this idea of 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 the market as a game and kind of society as a game is an interesting one. Um you know, so you know we can think about there's the rules of the game, institutional settings and, and rules. There's players involved, right? Actors and exchange and other stuff like that. And in in economics in particular, we use you know this ways of thinking like game theory to think about how people interact. And so kind of all that makes sense of like why we use this idea of a game. But I think it's also worth kind of from the get-go asking if that's the right analogy, right? And so it is in some senses and then isn't in another. And, and I think one of the things, particularly when you know Hayek's using that as reflecting this idea of a well-functioning market in a free society, if we then think about that as a game, there's some concerns I have about that. Games have winners and losers. One of the things that's you know great about a market is that it's mutually beneficial. And so if we are from the get-go using this language that they're, you know, of course, some people maybe win more, right? They're, they have more wealth, um, you know, they get, they get more opportunities. But, but this idea that there's winners and losers in that setting instead of like winners of various degrees, right, maybe it is wrong. And, and you know, maybe that lends us to, you know, like the, all the memes and stuff about like, millennials and younger generations being about like trophies for everybody, right? But there's something about that, about the market, where it actually is a trophy for everybody um, if it's well-functioning. And so that's kind of always bothered me about this idea of, of a game, right? But I think one of the things uh, you mentioned that, that's particularly also challenging is, is this idea that, that it's the only game in town and that there's only one and we're all supposed to be good at it. And I think there's a space to talk about the market as being the place where we interact the most in society. And that does have opportunities for a lot of people, right? There's, there's, there's arts and, and, and culture as well as production and goods and services in, in a, in a well-functioning market. There's a lot of opportunities, 
Um, but this notion that it's kind of like the only game and we've got to figure it out is an interesting one, particularly when we think about games. Like if we're going to play games on, you know, an afternoon, we get to pick which ones and, and say we're hanging out with our cousins and I'm very short and uh, one of my cousins is very tall, right? Like we're going to prefer different games because, you know, she might be clumsy, but she still is going to be able to touch the basketball net closer closer than I am, right? Or 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 those certain things. And so when we think about how we we interact with people with games, it's like you know maybe we we take turns with playing different games, or or, or we sort into what we're interested in. Not everybody plays football. We have we have all of these these different things. And so this idea that we would have one game in town that somehow you know say that game's basketball, well, some people will be naturally skilled at basketball because they're taller or whatever, right? Um, some will be, uh, you know, have more, develop more skills than others. Should we all be trying to get better at basketball or, or could there be other things? And, and you know, in a, in a well-functioning market, that seems not right because, like, it's all about innovation and change, we can figure it out. We can, you know, like, does that mean the game changes or, or you know, we can, we can take this analogy all, all the way if we wanted to. Um, but I have, I, think, a, yeah. I have a question about that one game in town idea. Um, and my sense is that this is not the way that, that you are interpreting it, but I believe that there are some critics of the market or my understanding is that there are some critics of the market who would describe you know ev just having to be involved in the economy at all as being a there's only one game we're playing situation um so especially people who interpret the world through the lens of you know, a, a Marxist style critique of capitalism where they view it as something, you know, first of all, they view the market as equivalent to capitalism. And then they view that structure as totally inescapable and as shaping everything that we encounter in life. And, um, and they don't see it as something dynamic. They see it as something very hierarchical, um, I don't know, is that, is there something to that critique? Is that a, is that a fair way to view the economic system that we participate in, for example, in the United States? Or, or would you offer kind of a different interpretation so i guess in other words is what you're presenting you know how close is what you're presenting and what you're thinking about to that critique or or is it very different yeah so i think you know that's interesting because i you know you can you can understand where that critique comes from and it's similar logic to to this this analogy that hayek is using right and so if we're thinking about you know i think What's interesting is, is, is thinking about, say, somebody who comes at the market with this critique. Instinctually, I would want to say it's not as homogenous as that, right? Markets are heterogeneous. There's multiple ways to make a living. We, we maybe have to 
you know, like there's, we're now talking, I think, socially about ideas that, you know, kind of come from Marxism and other questions of, of are we supposed to produce all the time? And what does work-life balance look like, right? Kind of post-pandemic questions of like, are we just a slave to the machine kind of idea, right? And so, you know, if, if one of the things about a well-functioning market is the ability to, to hopefully choose where you work and slog at, at things so that you can interact in the world, um, there seems to be more choices. So, so why then does Hayek use this game here to limit us in that, in that choice? And he does say, like, to be fair, he does say at some point, like, well, maybe the market isn't one game, it's, it's many games. But I think that's way more crucial than he talks about. Um, but And I think it's even more crucial when we think about kind of real world markets, like political capitalism that we see kind of every, you know, like there, there's genuine questions of, you know, is what's the freest market that we have to re in real life to really look at? Um, and so I think the game analogy works better um, for, for political capitalism, crony capitalism, kind of entangled real life society, uh, maybe. But also I think we still have a lot more choices over the, like the, it's not as homogenous. There are, where we see reform is where there's kind of like holes in, in, in some of these power structures. And so, you know, in the world where we have political capitalism, where there are regulations and reforms and kind of formal barriers to entry and exit in a market, restrictions that maybe make it slower for us to innovate and adapt. Then I think we can look at that game if we use it in that way and think maybe there's something going on with the rules or the referees or some players over others. And, and what's going on there, right? And so, so we can think about occupational licensing, ways to limit barriers to entry, often in, you know, jobs that maybe don't, there's an offset of the amount of education and the amount of training that you need to get that job done. And so what's that all about, right? Why are we, um, you know, is it that we're wanting to kind of keep the status quo of who's in those positions rather than adapt and change. Um, you know, you can take that up to say lawyers and bar entry and kind of all of those things, right? Ways to kind of control those, those things. Um, you know, we can kind of think about regulations and other efforts that have made it easier for pre-existing large companies to remain and for startups and and you know kind of new businesses to to have a harder footing, and and so in that way that seems like the rules are funky, and they're picking winners and losers. Who monitors that and enforces it? That's a question, right? Because because maybe those rules aren't so strict on paper, but the enforcement is, or you know we have all these ideas in political science and political economy on you know churn and the, 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 the way industry and government works for capture and privilege. And, and so we have all these concepts that we then need to really think about. Like those seem like those are institutional things that, that, that we should look at. So I think that kind of element 
um, you know, maybe in the world where, where we don't have any of those things, we could think of the market as the game and it's, is what it is and individual injustices can be treated as such. But in the world we live in, it's, there's, there are elites and powerful people that stay in maybe longer than they should and, and, and things that we can think about. So I think like that, that, I don't know if that quite answers your question. I mean, yeah. It, and it also raises this kind of whole set of issues when you bring up the biased referees and the way that those biased referees can wind up. Well, let me, let me reframe it. Referees can wind up introducing injustice either because they hold personal biases or perhaps they don't hold personal biases and they are evenly applying a rule, but that rule winds up having an effect that impacts more people rather than others. So think about like uh, if there's a flat fine for not getting the proper license or um, like, like when, when close to, you know, hopefully close enough to relevant example that I can think of is all of the uh, distilleries that um, shifted to manufacture hand sanitizer at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, these, fees wound up being waived, but there was a period of time where it looked like, um, I believe it was the FDA, maybe you can remember and can confirm. Um, but so the FDA was going to issue a $10,000 fee for them, uh, producing medical products, um, which they were not previously kind of licensed to be or permitted to be able to do so a ten thousand dollar fine is never going to put jack daniels out of business it might put someone who's just opened their first operation that year and is a small business owner that could be the difference between being able to continue and having to declare bankruptcy for them so kind of in this, you know, the regulatory structure itself can wind up introducing injustice, even if the referee is trying to be fair and is kind of is just doing their job properly in a bureaucratic sense. Um, so it, it gets complicated really quickly. <laughs> Yeah. And if we're if we're going to use the game analogy, right, we need to then think about, you know, how are referees um, held accountable in games, right? Do they get fines or reprimands when they make bad calls? Um, do they get to kind of say, oh, we tried, right? Like if we think about kind of particularly go governmental interventions and regulations and, and some of these things that could look universal and generally applicable and aren't like the $10,000 fine, you know, then we have to think about, yeah, are there one that looks like an institutional rule? Like that looks like 
rules of the game that should be changed. And so one thing we can think about is like in games, do they change the rules? And and there are processes for that. And maybe that brings us into kind of Buchanan's constitutional political economy of, of when to assess and and change those rules and how challenging that is. But, you know, over time, uh, they've adapted rules for football to address head injuries. And they've also adapted rules for gymnasts to limit particular ones that are very good from winning everything, right? So there's like many ways in which rules have changed over time for games. So so how does that happen for for you know, society as a game or, or markets as a game or, 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 you know, this kind of thing is an open question. And then, yeah, how do we then, you know, if we're in a world where we're trying to fix injustices and the rules are messed up or the referees are not as good at their job as they could be, well, how do we fix that? And one of the things that I think is really challenging about you know, a lot of economics and social science in general is, is sometimes we, uh, we identify a problem and then this dichotomy that you brought up about the Ostroms, right? We say government can solve it. And then there's not a lot of space to like assess and change government. Once it's, once an agency's in place, it stays, you know, there, there's things we can tweak, but often, you know, it's, it's very sticky. It's not a space where adaptation can happen. And so are the referees being held accountable? You know, there's a there's a lot of literature that says, you know, particularly after disasters, which I'm familiar with, is, you know, things go wrong. But then like FEMA and other agencies end up getting bigger budgets and and more um, personnel and, and authority rather than less. And so how does that accountability mechanism really work? Um, you know, if we want to go there, you know, police are supposed to enforce rules like private property and other things or courts. If those referees are enforcing rules that lead to unjust outcomes or not just themselves, how do they get reprimanded? Well, in the world where we have protections, it's very hard for, say, police or public teachers or whoever to get fired or reprimanded. Well, that's a problem. And and maybe we can use the game analogy to go back and say, well, referees in basketball get in trouble when this happens, right? <laughs> like how, how do how do we do that? So so I think it gets it gets really complicated once we start thinking about gatekeepers and 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 referees in that sense. Yeah. For anybody who's keeping score, this idea of the referees being biased is the second of the the two circumstances under which the market could be thought of as an unfair game, along with the rigidity of the rules of the market structure itself. And so you bring up this idea of, okay, so we've identified this problem, these possible sources of bias that are generating social injustice. Um, Now what are we going to do about it? We don't. We don't as easily have access to this kind of mechanisms, you know, the the NBA disciplining a referee or not bringing them back. If we port that analogy directly over into this conversation, then what we're doing is asking the highest political authority. We're going to the person at the top of the hierarchy to fix it for us. So 
what are some of the challenges, you know, and of course, that gets us into this conundrum of a lot of these social injustices are being caused by that authority. So that authority might not be the best place to go to get them fixed. Uh, So what are going to be some of those challenges that are associated with looking to public policy, looking to the courts or the legislature to be able to address these social injustices that are stemming from political capitalism and bias in the the that process as gatekeepers and referees. Yeah, I think that's really challenging, you know, this idea that we see injustices and so something like government and 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 big government can solve these big problems is is you know very kind of common sense. And then what a lot of economics and particularly mainline political economy brings is like way more complicated, right? And um, I worked in government for a couple of years. A lot of my friends that work there and people I met know it's messy and complicated. And so, you know, sometimes that's a perception that, you know, in the inside people know it's way trickier, um, maybe. Um, or maybe it's a failing on 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 social scientists, right, to not dig into the complexities of some of that stuff and public choice and, and other things can, can sh- shed light on that. Um, you know, I think you know, Hayek talks about knowledge problems and and the epistemological limits that we have. We can't know everything. We can't interpret everyone's desires and how they'll adapt to our reforms. Um, There aren't easy statistical models and data collection techniques that will do that for us because we're messy, changing people who, you know, adapt when things happen and and figure out how to go around, you know, we have workarounds all the time for how do, how do we how do we work together and we how to do things, right? So this idea that, you know, sort of that what Smith calls like the man of systems can kind of easily pick policies that people can just fix fix these problems with people, I think is is something that we've really taken for granted and the, the humility needed for that matters. And then then you have the incentive problems of government. This idea that it's hard to adapt, maybe accountability is tricky. Um, you know, ca- you know, the way we fund and make choices in government is very complicated. Then you have this kind of Lavoy lesson of power. If we keep doing that, the more and more we intervene, he says, the more and more we become militaristic, and that power grows. And so. If we're thinking about social justice as government reform that's going to give us liberties and freedom, it doesn't. It makes us more controlled over time. That's super powerful. We have to think about it, right? So then I think we get back to that question you brought up about the Ostroms and this breaking this dichotomy. And so I think that's where we get to say there's a lot of interesting things happening in civil society about social justice issues. There's ways that we can protest or push back on reform on regulations and reforms that aren't doing a good job. Um, but there's also ways that we can kind of go around and solve some of these problems, maybe at smaller scale. And I think part of the problem is we want these really big fixes. And I just don't think big fixes are, are the way to do it. Um, you know, Eleanor Ostrom talked about there is no panacea. It's a bunch of little, little things. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of interesting ways we can think about that and you know even just how much 
you know, it's, it, it might be scary how quick our language is changing and the way we're talking about injustices, right? How do we keep up with, with new terms and ideas and, and liberties and push back on liberties and things that are happening? Um, but that's also quite exciting for social change to see this happening in real time. And, and that's not because the president's really good at social justice. That's because of people like coming together and, and, you know, through association and civil society and the market figuring these things out. Um, and so I think that's where we have to turn. And it also allows us, you know, if we're from a Hayekian perspective, now we get to critique the rules of, of government but we also get to take these challenges seriously and say, like, well, that's not the answer, probably. There, there, there needs to be some new answers. So, you know, there's, there's, there's interesting nonprofits and, and initiatives to, you know, think about diversity and you know, poverty alleviation in interesting ways. You know, how do we build skills Hayek was for education in this sense. Like he did, there were, you know, a couple of policies that he thought were important to give people equal access to opportunities. And so, you know, I think there's a, a lot of ways we can think about that. There's also like really interesting concepts like restorative justice that are more, that tend to be more kind of community-based. It's about the actors involved, not, you know, big referees making the decisions. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things that we could open that up to that 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 could talk about accountability and and, and change on the margin that that should that bottom up influence I think has more potential than the top down. Well, since we're getting to the top of our hour here, I want to wrap up by asking you um, a question that I've asked everybody else in this mini series. Um, what do you see, and maybe this connects to some of what you were talking about regarding the small scale actions where we can work from the bottom up to address some of these inequities and failures of justice. Um, but what do you see as those greatest opportunities going forward to move us towards the liberal vision of a society of freely relating equals? That's a great question. So, you know, I think it's hard now because things feel divisive and polarizing and, you know, we're in the space where we can kind of see everyone's opinions and nobody's opinions all at the same time with, you know, uh, social media and, you know, free-flowing, more free-flowing information. Um, and I think, you know, if we're, if we're looking at things like games, there's winners and losers, that really leans into those, those, those challenging aspects of society, um, which exist for sure. Like people, whether we like it or not, like people aren't going to be super rational and little analytical all the time, right? They're, you know, not going to be um, they're going to have strong opinions. And so how, how do we interact with one another? And I think, you know, the big challenge of this idea, particularly of liberalism and cosmopolitanism and a space for diversity, because we know that's really important for the market, right? It's like actually how we get innovations and growth is people thinking about things differently and doing them differently. 
how do we reconcile that with the fact that like people interacting with each other, it's really hard and we have a whole host of different opinions and, and preferences and, and things like that. And so I think, I think if we can find a way to shift the conversation from debates and, you know, particularly the types of political and political economy debates of, you know, you don't understand the problem. It's this, right? Like if we, if we see there's injustices in the world, we can say, yeah, government isn't probably the answer maybe, but there's other answers rather than just stop after that first bit. And so I think that means we have to, as social scientists and people, be really open to what's going on actually in civil society. And then we also have to take on participation in civil society rather than just waiting for somebody to tell us what the rules of the game are and referee the game, right? And I think that that gets back to the Ostroms, like living in the in a world we want to live in where we live better together requires a lot of work. And maybe that's tough sometimes and we would it'd be easier if somebody just told us what to what to do, but the the whole idea of liberalism is we get the creativity to do that and mess up and and so if we really want that space, you know, what Hayek calls those individual spheres of freedom to act and do what we do, we got to use the space, right? We got to put in the effort and we've, we've got to kind of do that. And so I think if we're interested in liberalism, that requires, um, you know, kind of. And, and we have to take the responsibility to maintain and build high quality institutions ourselves rather than leaving that for others, whether that's saying, oh, the current, the status quo is taking care of it. I don't have to think about it. Or I need to to lobby to get somebody who's higher in the hierarchy to take care of it for me. Kind of both of those are much less likely to lead to actually long-run, enduring liberal institutions than building a culture where we take on the responsibility for that directly ourselves. Wow. And that kind of, you know, I've been reading a lot of Ostrom lately and, you know, the way she talks about understanding the real limits, but also capabilities of people, right? Like if we're worried about society, we shouldn't just think we know better or a few people do. We need to think about how everybody gets that freedom to, to participate. And, you know, even when it's messy because it's never not messy, well, I know we could go on for hours about this because there are many times that we have. Um, so <laughs> I'll just wrap up by saying, you know, thank you for tackling these important questions and um, being willing to have these difficult conversations. And I think everybody is going to just learn a, so much from your from your work. So thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And I uh, look forward to hearing people's thoughts or seeing research in this line of work. There's a bunch to do. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Take care. Hi, Jamie here again. 
Thanks for listening all the way to the end of our series, Liberalism for All. I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, But after asking about six hours worth of questions on the topic of liberalism for all, I'm curious, what are your questions? If there were parts of the series that you found particularly interesting or odd or just want to learn more about, I invite you to write in to Program at mercatus.gmu.edu. We'll include that email in the show notes as well. And I'll see what I can do about getting you some answers or at least some recommended reading that will help you work towards them. And if you'd like to hear more series like this on the Hayek Program podcast, where we go in depth over multiple episodes, please write to that same email, Program at mercatus.gmu.edu to let us know some topics in the social sciences that you'd like to get that Hayek Program PPE perspective on. Thanks again for listening, and I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're having a beautiful day. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.